I'm Kelsey. I'm Cassie. And I'm Nolan from SCP Weekly. We bring you news from on-site and off-site. And we share your love for the creative community that surrounds the SCP Wiki. Join us on Tuesdays for new episodes, wherever you listen to podcasts, or on YouTube at SCP Weekly. The world we inhabit is not as free, or certain, or safe as you might think. The things that you believe to be unassailably evident are little more than shadows dancing behind a curtain, a masquerade crafted and dutifully upheld by an organization known as the Foundation. The file you are about to hear contains containment procedures, descriptions, testing logs, historical and in some cases first-hand accounts of the anomalous objects the Foundation serves to secure, contain, and protect. Its contents have been thoroughly scrutinized by the Ethics Committee and approved by the O5 Council for release to trusted associates of the Foundation. This is SCP Unredacted. O5-1's chopper lands on the Site-40 helipad, and an unassuming man with near-transparent skin exits. Everyone turns to look at him as he walks through the site although with enough respect to try and pretend they aren't. He notices, but extends the same respect to them, and doesn't act like he has. He's here to meet with the man and woman that saved the world, Captain Perseus Rosales and Dr. Mikasa Kaori. They piloted humanity's ultimate hope against the forces that would doom the world and emerge victorious. While their mech was ruined in the process, its shattered form had been brought to Site-40 and suspended atop an oil platform. The councilman walks up to the railing on the side of the platform where Rosales and Kaori are waiting. He perches himself on it, folding bony fingers around the edge, staring intensely at the mech in front of him. Rosales and Kaori exchange a glance before they approach their superior. You wanted to speak with us, sir? So I did. His voice is harsh but strong, almost as if it should be quiet, but is being amplified somehow. First of all, I must thank and congratulate you again for your actions in Greenland. You saved us all from certain doom. He takes a deep breath of the cold ocean air and pauses before he continues. But I have to ask, what are the chances that this could happen again? Have we truly saved the world for good or only on this one occasion? Can we let our guard down? Or do we have to pay more attention than ever? Mikasa gulps. She was afraid of this question. It can't happen again, sir. It'd be more easy than it was in the past. There are more monsters in the world now, more giants. And it'd be easier for one to take control now. Their bonds have been strengthened. The metal of the railing groans as O5-1 crushes it in his hands. His eyes burn with fire and fury as he stares at the ruined mech. Then the work is not over. Ringing out a washcloth, Quincy Ridge looks at himself in the mirror for a moment before rubbing it on his face, a much-needed refreshing chilliness against his warm skin. Tossing the cloth in the laundry bin, he glances at his watch. While working at Wilson's Wildlife Solutions usually felt fulfilling, everyone was acting a bit strange since all the giant monster stuff. At least he wasn't poor Mr. Wilson. He'd been trying to argue with the castaways, or, well, the Foundation now, that the monsters didn't deserve to be killed, using Cappy as an example that WWS could handle these sorts of things. Quincy had tried to tell him that there's a difference between a crocosquid murder machine 
and the doofy, sentient bath toy that is Cappy, but he still kept pushing on. And speaking of Cappy, she's Quincy's last animal to check on for the day. He walks over to the locker room sink and snatches up the bucket and sponge and sets off for her enclosure. As he draws closer to the fence, however, something is amiss. A short, chubby man in a purple suit sits on top of Cappy's head, scratching her gently. Who's a good fly murderer, he asks Cappy, who makes a little groan of happiness. You are. Good girl. Something feels off about the man's voice, like it's constantly wobbling, never consistent in pitch, topped off by the remnants of an accent Quincy just can't tack down. Polish, maybe? Before Quincy could ponder more, he pushes through the gate and calls out to the man. Hello? Are you supposed to be here? He turns, his face lighting up as he notices Quincy. One moment, good sir. Holding on to his black top hat, he slides down Cappy's back and hops over to Quincy with a crooked smile and yellow teeth. You must be Quincy, yes? Cappy told me so much about you. Yes, but how did... The man suddenly gasps. Where are my manners? I completely forgot to introduce myself. I am Dr. Cornelius Wondertainment of Dr. Wondertainment TM, but you can just call me Cornelius. He takes a bow. All right, so, uh, you made Cappy? I signed off on her shipment, although judging on how she's here and not in our Portland location, it appears that didn't go so well, huh? Well, that's beside the point. The people in charge of the shipment have been... He takes a pause, seconds too long, as if he's searching for the best way to convey his next words. Dealt with, yes. Quincy gulps and contemplates running off to phone the supervisors, but something tells him he doesn't have to be dealt with. Cutting to the chase, he musters a polite smile to Cornelius. So what are you here for? Cornelius reaches into his suit pocket and pulls out a small yellow scroll. I'm here to give you ownership of Cappy, of course. After seeing how much you've taken a liking to her, your child Harper especially, I just can't take her away from you all. That would be cruel. So instead, we're just going to call this whole situation a happy little accident, yes? Handing the scroll to Quincy, Cornelius gave his hand a little pat before letting go. So does this mean we can take pictures of her now? For a moment, Cornelius's face turns to a blank stare. Then he lets out a giggle. Why, yes, as long as they're not for commercial purposes. And if they are, all profits must be funded to Dr. Wondertainment, TM. Everything's outlined in that scroll. Now I'm afraid I must be going. Been quite busy with all this monster business, and it's almost time for our meeting on which ones to make realistic plushies out of. In fact, perhaps I could send a catalog your way? Afraid to say no, Quincy simply nods his head. Brilliant. Pulling out an umbrella from who knows where, Cornelius opens it and begins to float up into the sky. Goodbye, Quincy and Cappy. Have fun. Soon the man becomes nothing more than a dot in the sky, and eventually nothing at all. Quincy looks up for a few moments more before glancing over at Cappy. Well, that was sure something, wasn't it? But less crazy than a giant fly, I think. Cappy simply responds by sneezing, sending a mist of water into his face. A signal he knows means, give me a sponge bath now. Wiping his eyes, he sighs. You're never going to not want a sponge bath, will you? Cappy glances at him, then at her unscratched back, and Quincy already knows the answer. He looks down at the scroll in his hands and then tears it in half. It doesn't matter if he has some dumb scroll or not, everything's the same. And so, Quincy continues his routine, a small tang of happiness in his heart.
It's been a week since the apocalypse came and went, and Stanislav Nikolaev is still in Foundation custody. The way it's looking, he'll be spending the rest of his natural life in containment. They'll probably bring him before some committee and ring him up on charges for his crimes. After all, it really is his fault that this whole mess happened. That's the way it looks to the Foundation, at least. Stanislav sees things from a different perspective. He's got his ear on the ground, listening in on the groans and aches of the Site-40 installation he's being kept in. He's got an escape plan, but he's only going to get the one chance. There's more than one prisoner in this joint. He's been paying attention when they bring him food. They always deliver it at the same time. And today, when they come, he's at the door and slams it down off the hinges into the guard. The guard goes down quick. He's not expecting a man nearly 60 to be this strong. But Stanislav made his life's work around the breeding of monsters, and in time, he figured out how to make himself one. The guard's out of it, lying on the ground and moaning in pain. Not unconscious, but he won't be doing anything to stop Stanislav. Good enough. Stanislav grabs his gun and runs down the hall. He doesn't need a weapon, since he has enough beneath his skin. But the gun will help intimidate any opponents he comes across. Can't convincingly intimidate somebody into thinking you'll rip him to shreds, when he don't look any different from anybody else. And Stanislav isn't in the mood to put his hands back together after the claws come out. The elevator doors aren't far away from his cell. This he remembered from when they took him in. They put a blindfold over him, but that only blocked out one of his senses. He still had the other eight. At this point, there's a good chance he knows the layout of the place better than some of the employees that work here. Not all, but a good few. Metal doors crumple in his hands. His skin is stretching tight as his internal shift and flex. He might have to repair his hands anyway. That makes the decision to grab the elevator cables to coast down much easier. It shreds the skin around his hands to pieces and exposes the chitin he has underneath. Good thing he decided he wanted that layer before the experiment, since he hasn't had the chance to change anything since. When he smashes the doors on the level he wants, he barely even looks human. Fortunately for him, and for his escape plans, even the most hardened researcher will still shit their pants at an unexpected horror monster crashing through their laboratory. A quick rampage, a little bullying, and they give him what he wants. There's a hangar in the lower levels of Site-40, right before it drops open to the ocean. It's been repurposed as a containment unit, holding a massive beetle the Foundation calls LSA Elizabeth-18. Stanislav himself doesn't have a name for it, but he knows it's a friend and also his ticket out of here. Stanislav crashes into the room holding it, and the creature turns to look at it. It stirs in excitement. Seconds later, the side of Site 40 explodes and a titan emerges. Stanislav rides atop the insect, which unfurls a pair of massive wings and chitters before taking off into the air. The pair cries out together as one. A feathered serpent of colossal size lazily drifts through the troposphere. It is worse for wear. Whole swaths of its plumage have been incinerated, with deep bite marks and gashes lining the rest of its body. But it's an old thing, and it has endured worse. It's not always been the only behemoth in existence. The giants that crawl the surface of the earth are only a fraction of the strength of what was once extant. But while they are less deadly... It is still enough to shake the firmament. And still, every so often, in a rare age, a beast climbs atop the rest of its rivals 
and touches upon the power to do even greater things. So it has happened before, so it will happen again. These are the thoughts of the serpent as it coasts on atmospheric winds. There's a way buried deep within the clouds, and this is how it will return home. There is some complicated method to activate it, but the serpent is the master key to all the gates and doesn't need to bother with the tools of mortals. It flies through the clouds and breaks through the dew. Its arrival into the library itself shocks all of the patrons who had gathered, completely unprepared to see the owner come home. They panic for a moment, moving around and trembling at the sight of the beast. It doesn't bother with them. It slips into a deep passage and floats down to the bottom, down to the deepest layers of the library, where it curls around the base of the old withered tree that supports it all. The serpent will not die, but it needs to rest for a long time. Knowing that it has saved the world, it closes its eyes and drifts off into a deep and wonderful dreaming. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, join my Discord community, hire me on Fiverr, or help support me by becoming a patron for as little as $3 a month. Regardless of tier, all patrons get early access to every single episode. The links are in the description. I don't have the talent it takes to write a skip. All I do is read. Original authors make this podcast possible. So, credit to the original author. Their link's in the description. Show them some love as well. Consider becoming a member of the SCP Wiki. Upvote their work and maybe write a skip of your own. Maybe I'll read it here someday. You never know if you never try. The content of this podcast and content relating to the SCP Foundation, including the SCP Foundation logo, is licensed under Creative Commons ShareLight 3.0, and all concepts originate from scpwiki.com and its authors. This recording, being derived from this content, is hereby also released under Creative Commons ShareLight 3.0. I'm Grigori Carpin from Simply Creative People, the podcast where we discuss GOIs, canons, and stories from the SCP Wiki, and we try to recommend things for all fans of the Wiki, new and old. Look for us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. Visit the show page at anchor.fm slash simply-creative-people, or follow us on Twitter at S-I-M-C-R-E-A-T. Hey there, this is DJ Skip, host of Foundation After Midnight Radio, coming to you from the only third shift broadcast for personnel, by personnel. Be sure to tune in wherever you listen to podcasts to not miss out on containment news and community announcements from within the Foundation.